Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. When I was a graduate school student, I was part of a ministry that visited men who were in prison. The men whom we visited and slowly came to know were all taking degree programs through Boston University, trying to forge a way forward for their lives that might mean on their release that they could leave incarceration behind them and not come back. This sort of hope was set against the grim Reality for many of the men, those in the program knew inside, for whom prison was a revolving door. Recidivism rates in the United States are startlingly high. A recent Bureau of Justice statistics study tracked just over 400,000 prisoners in 30 states after their release from prison and found that within three years of release, about 65% were rearrested. And within five years, that number had risen to nearly 80%. Incarceration is a vicious cycle, a reality that no one needed to tell those who lived it day by day. Like Wayne, who was the person I had been assigned to meet on those Tuesday nights in Norfolk, Massachusetts. Wayne's experience of the world was so very different to my own. He had learned to navigate a life of poverty, gang loyalties, drugs, and brutal violence from a young age. All I had to navigate for my year in Boston was a visa from Homeland Security, Harvard Yard, and the T. He might as well have come from different planets let alone different countries. Yet somehow, as a sheer gift of grace, Wayne welcomed me in. The genius of the prison visitation program was its simplicity. All that was required of the two of us was to sit next to one another for an hour and stay still. And so we did week by week, planting ourselves in those orange plastic bucket seats. The gang member from Dorchester, Boston, the English clergyman from Worcestershire, as I told Wayne, where they make the sauce. Sometimes in life, the best friendships are the most improbable. Yet always, holy ground is a gift that can only be received if we stop long enough to notice where it is we should walk onto it. You've probably experienced holy ground in your own life. It might be that its holiness was abundantly clear as you moved upon it, or it might be that it only became holy to you after the fact. Some of us experience holy ground in the hospital room, where we have stayed still and watched and waited long enough for grace to get a hold of us and of our hopes and fears for what might unfold. 
others of us may have known such ground in our marriages and in our most significant relationships, in the ways by which we knew that something more than just two were present in those times of need and joy and longing. As Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem reminds us, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. God's holy ground is seeable everywhere. It is in your home. It is where you go to work and where you play. It is in the corridors of power and on the sidewalks where those who have no power lay their heads at night. God is not picky. Just take a look at us. Grace isn't just abundant. It is ubiquitous everywhere, permeating all things. The trick is for us to wait long enough upon God to be able to notice it, take off our shoes and summon the courage to walk toward what we might otherwise have avoided. Wayne's lesson for my own life was that waiting, choosing to dwell with the people around me is its own virtue, a practice for life that retains the possibility that in that act of staying still, God speaks into the life I am so hectically going about living. In the book that some of us have been reading online this Lent, Being Disciples, Rowan Williams offers the invitation for the church to live into this vocation of the community of disciples as those who will learn by abiding with one another. In a frantic and anxious world, Can we be people who will stay still enough for God's love to take shape around our lives? Are you willing to stop a while and let God happen in you and between you and others? Lent's slowing down and emptying out of our lives for a season reminds us that Holy ground cannot be dug up, its soil turned over in a rush. Instead, it is a space in our lives that calls us to take the time to untie our shoes, cast aside our socks, and let the soles of our feet feel the earth beneath us pulsate with God. In the end, to dwell upon holy ground is not a specialist skill. In fact, its disciplines are barely visible at all. Pray. Practice stillness. Be alone for some time. Stop talking quite so much. Listen. Feel the ground beneath your feet and the person right next to you and know that it is holy. Sometimes, though, such things can be hard. We are not always ready for stillness, and the world is ever ready to turn us on our heads with its ceaseless capacity to frustrate our longings to love. 
My visits with Wayne were no strangers to such frustrations. For as much as we might have wished to plant our feet there together, the surface often seemed impenetrable. He was in a jumpsuit, watched at all times. The hour before our meeting, I had been screened and searched, and as I waited to be allowed in with the rest of those visiting that day, I bore witness to the dehumanizing spaces where the loved ones of the incarcerated, including their children, wait week by week, somehow hoping to retain a glimmer of a connection with fathers and husbands and brothers and sons on the other side of the security apparatus. At times, it felt like a slow and heartbreaking suffocation of hope. Yet even when it was less so, somehow it all seemed consistent with the posture that each of us was required to assume that hour of visitation. That we could be present with one another, but we could not turn to face the person we were with. Seating next to an inmate was only permitted if we were positioned side by side, glancing sideways yet never eye to eye, sharing ground, but not quite finding it in common. For holy ground to offer us its fullest gift, more than stopping is required. We also have to learn to turn, even as the world around us would prefer to have the differences between us set our faces away from one another. Turning was certainly required for Moses. He would never have made his way to that holy ground and its burning bush had he not turned aside to see, as the reading from Exodus puts it this morning. Only in choosing to turn does Moses get to hear how his improbable life would be God's chosen vessel to set an entire people free. Yet, as you and I know, turning is not easy. Indeed, it is tempting sometimes, is it not, to think that we might just walk by one another, traveling in parallel, and avoid that which is hard in the midst of our lives. Yet we know full well from all that life has to teach us that parallel living doesn't work in the end. Jesus as we hear him say repeatedly in Luke's gospel, invites us to a different kind of life to that, a life that chooses not only to dwell with others, but to orient ourselves to the lives of others. Turn back is Jesus' word to us. In the Greek, in the gospel today, it is metanoiete, which not only means repent, as in once and you're done, but is to be translated literally as be the ones who are repenting, the ones who will turn back over and over again. Dwell and turn. Abide and face that which you have avoided. Such are the lessons for Lent and for a life 
which chooses not only to wander upon holy ground, but to explore how such spaces are capable of setting our hearts on fire with God's gracious light. Turn to the love who already is turned to you. Turn to that divine love in the life of those whom you know well and in those lives whom God is calling you to know more. This is holy ground, made so for you and for all that you are called to become. Amen.